The story is told of a certain young man who finally worked up the courage to propose marriage to the girl he loved with all his heart. He worked up his gumption and came up to her door and rapped upon the door, and when the door swung open wide, he dropped down to one knee and gazed up in her eyes, and this is what he said, Sue, I know I'm not very wealthy like Waldo, and I I know I'm not particularly as well-educated as, say, Waldo, but even though I may not be as, as handsome as Waldo, oh, Sue, I love you with all of my heart. The girl was obviously moved. And with great sincerity, she looked back at him and said, well, well, I love you too, honey, but tell me a little bit more about this Waldo. There is something in all of us of this woman, Sue, I think. Something that is always, even in the light of our primary commitments, looking for other good options. And this may be nowhere near as significant a reality as in the matter of our spiritual life. On one hand, there is this impulse within all of us, I suppose, that, that binds us to Christ. An impulse to draw nearer to Him, to surrender our character and our, our conduct to His character and commandments, to enwrap our, our very lives around Him as long as we shall live. What makes that somewhat hard to do fully, however, is the knowledge that there are these other options out there, that there are other places and people to whom we might go to find the wealth or the wisdom or the warmth that we may seek. Long ago, in a place called Laodicea, there lived a people who also struggled to find their way in this regard. And what made it so very hard for them, as it may still be for us today, was the enormous appeal of that which competed with their devotion to Christ. If you were looking for wealth, for example, for real security, Laodicea certainly offered you options. Situated on the great highway that that ran from the civilizations along the Euphrates River to the east all the way out to the great city of Ephesus and the Aegean Sea on the west, Laodicea had developed by the middle of the first century A.D. into an enormously prosperous center of commerce and banking. So affluent were the general citizens of Laodicea that when in A.D. 60 a great earthquake rocked the region as it had in so many times past, leveling many of the great cities of that time, 
The citizenry of Laodicea refused the earthquake relief package offered to them by Caesar, preferring to rebuild the city themselves out of their own resources, doing it their own way, as no other city around could or did. If you sought wisdom to handle the pains and the problems of your life, then Laodicea was also a place of tremendous offerings. The city prided itself as a visionary leader in the arts and sciences, and alongside of many great schools that grew up there was a state-of-the-art medical center affiliated with the cult of the god Asclepius, the god of healing we hear about in other parts of the book of Revelation. And there at that medical center, they fashioned an ophthalmic powder uh, called Phrygian ointment that was applied as a salve to the eyes to, to cure various ocular ailments. And people would come from far and wide to purchase that medicine. Alongside of the wealth and the wisdom found in Laodicea, one could also find there the warmth that one sought, at least in the physical sense. One of the great industries of Laodicea's life was its textile business. And it was there that there were manufactured signature creations of glossy black woolen fabric that were widely touted for their incredible softness and style. For when it came to haberdashery, the Laodiceans were the trendsetters of ancient Asia Minor. This helps to explain why, I suppose, it must have been so very difficult for the Christians of that culture to keep their focus, to keep giving themselves wholeheartedly over to serving Christ and Christ alone when there was just so much in the way of the world's wealth and wisdom and warmth to avail yourself of. It was admittedly hard in the context of that kind of prosperity not to get somewhat distracted. It can become easy in our day, with all of the prosperity of our time, to become similarly distracted, I think. We still tell ourselves that we're extremely interested in Christ, in Christ's way, while at the same time progressively giving ourselves more and more over to the world's concept of wealth, of wisdom, of warmth. That had apparently happened at Laodicea. They claimed that they were still very interested in Jesus, but they were more and more chasing after Waldo, if you get my drift. Exactly how that worked itself out, we're not entirely sure. Maybe they still nodded very thoughtfully in their worship services when the Scripture texts were about tithing or storing up treasure in heaven, while at the same time 
98% of how they invested themselves was aimed at the gaining and the dusting of the wealth of this world. Or just perhaps they, they still claim to, to care deeply about the Scriptures and, and pouring through them studiously and sharing the good news while more and more of their actual time And the service of their lips was given over to the wisdom of the world and the latest news. Or just maybe they still told themselves that their real identity and security was was found in the promises God had made them in Jesus Christ. While more and more, they warmed themselves with the consumer goods and found themselves enfolded by the pleasure of the comments others made about the finery of their clothes and their lifestyle. Because I live in a fishbowl, I I can't throw stones at the Laodiceans. It is hard for me, as it must have been for them, as it probably is for many of us, to be really honest about where our greatest loyalty really lies. We genuinely want to honor our relationship with God. That's not a sham. We, we truly want to be for Christ and with Christ. But we struggle with the fact that as we take hold of and, and use these tools of wisdom and wealth and the warmth of this world, trying to serve God's purposes, they begin to to exercise a certain charm upon us, begin to draw more of our heart over to the world's way of these things. To the long last, we're not sure what or whom our master truly is. And we may come to care increasingly more for the world's wealth than for God's, the world's wisdom and the Lord's, the warmth that the world can give us than the warmth He can give us. When this happens, a person rarely chills on God completely or grows cold altogether to his or her original faith, he or she might continue to be very active in a church or or claim to be a Christian, but, but neither does he or she continue to live with the hot passion that that characterized a wholehearted commitment to Christ. That person simply becomes by subtle degrees a tepid disciple lukewarm in sin, lukewarm in righteousness. And this is what had happened to many of the Laodicean Christians. And it helps to explain what Jesus says to them in the next words, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. Christ's desire, of course, 
is that we be hot. That we be on fire for him. As the Christians were at Pentecost. That we be aglow with the Spirit, as Paul calls the Roman church to be. And fanning that flame is the entire purpose of the seven letters to the church of ancient Asia Minor. Christ wants followers who will love God and love others with the hot passion we associate with first love. And that's what he calls the believers at Ephesus to. Jesus wants there to burn within us the flame of perseverance that outlasts the downpours of persecution. And it's that quality he commends in the church at Smyrna. And Christ wants believers who are on fire for the truth and who seek to pass the torch of, of faith onto the next generation as he challenged the Christians at Pergamum to do. He wants believers who crackle with a passion for holiness when that passion's gone out in the world all around as it had at Thyatira and to glow with integrity, with a reality in the inside of their lives that matches the reputation of their outside as he sought to have happen at Sardis. Jesus still longs for disciples aflame with enthusiasm, which literally means entheos, the infilling of God. Individuals aflame with an enthusiasm to go through the door of opportunity Christ had opened up for mission in the world. As he said to the Philadelphian Christians long ago, these sorts of Christians glorify God by their light, by their heat. These sorts of Christians God uses to to enkindle or to rekindle the faith of others. But even the opposite of a hot Christian is better than a tepid one. If someone is altogether cold about faith, then at least very few people mistake them for a Christian. Use them as an excuse to write off the claims of Christianity. Nothing is so useless to God, so damaging to the witness of Christ in the world as tepid Christians. Oh God, please, keep us from being tepid Christians. What is so disturbing to Jesus is how many such people don't even perceive their condition. Jesus says, you say, I am rich. He's talking to the Christians here. And I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The tragedy was the Christians at Laodicea didn't understand their situation, their condition. As far as they were concerned, they were wealthy in the ways that really counted. 
affluent enough to, to rebuild their, their city without the help of Caesar, obviously blessed by God. But Jesus is saying, unless you become humble enough to receive the riches of God's grace, you will never see your character rebuilt. The Christians at Laodicea had all the worldly wisdom necessary to heal their eyes. But Jesus was trying to say to them that unless they learned to become open again to the light of God's incoming truth, they would walk in darkness always. They had all the warmth of the latest fashions, but unless they received Christ's love to heat their hearts, to clothe their souls with His righteousness, they would remain shamefully naked in the sight of God. There are only two things that people, that God can do with a people like that. The one is to give up on them. Like a bridegroom whose lover has gone waltzing after Waldo once too often. God can just shake the dust from his feet, turn on his heel, and walk away from their door. Jesus suggests that God's almost ready to do that with the Laodiceans. He says, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. But here is where the nature of God that Jesus reveals makes at least this lukewarm Christian fall to my knees in humble wonder and worship. For he shows us that God has not stopped loving his people. That even his sharp words of challenge of condemnation here, are moved and flamed by a still red-hot passion for his people. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, he says. And then, just at that moment, when by every human instinct, God should have been walking away, seeking someone who was more plain in their devotion to him, Jesus utters those timeless words that still echo down the centuries and speak to you and me, if we have the ears to hear. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you will hear my voice, and open the door. I will come in and eat with you and you with me. Jesus comes to knock at the door of the tepid individual's heart once again, calling for a change. To those who open the door, an amazing surprise is in store. There stands one who does not condemn, does not cast out, does not command, but in the words of Jesus, simply counsels.
respecting the free will with which he's ennobled us. He counsels us to open our hands and receive the gifts he brings. To receive true wealth, he says. Not the fading baubles of this world, but, but the gold of my presence and of my kingdom's life that no thief can ever take away and time does not corrode. Come take this that you might be rich, gold refined by fire. Jesus says, please receive true warmth. Not the coverings of this world, but the clothes of white that I give you the acclamation of righteousness, of forgiveness, of new life that I can give you so that you will know that no matter how the, the glory of your appearance fades away, no matter how others think of you, you are still blessed, still clothed in my character and love. Receive, says Jesus, the salve of my spirit to put on your eyes. And with that wisdom he gives us by the power of his spirit, our eyes are opened. And we catch a glimpse of the wonder of the feast and the fellowship we have in him. It must be said that when Christ enters a human heart, it's not to perpetuate a tepid relationship. It's to precipitate a total communion. In other words, it's not simply to stay just for dinner and then be on his way, leaving us to go back to the way our life's always been. It's not to stay confined in the neatly arranged, carefully controlled public rooms of our life and heart. Jesus comes in to take up occupancy in the whole of our life and for all of our life. He wants to venture into every single room of our character and conduct. He comes to clean out even the locked closets that we don't want anybody seeing the contents of and would never let anyone else in. He comes in to redecorate and to refurbish and refurnish those parts of our life that we've grown so accustomed to that we no longer see. How tattered, faded they've become. He comes to set up new rules and new schedules and new patterns of living. He comes to make the small domain of our lives into an outpost of the grand dominion of his kingdom. The choice that lies for Christians in every age 
is between the wealth and wisdom and warmth of this world and that of God. Between a, a tepid religiosity and a passionate, hot discipleship. In the midst of an increasingly cold world, which one will we choose? Whoever has an ear, let them hear what Christ says to the churches. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we ask you to to continue to come through the door of our lives. Whether for the very first time this day, we open the front door and invite you in. Or whether we surrender to you now the key to rooms we've kept locked up. Oh God, we ask you to to make us your own. We pledge our loyalty to you, the great bridegroom. And we ask, Lord God, that you by your spirit will ignite in us a passion to live for you even greater than when we began moments ago. For we offer ourselves afresh in the name of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.